Chapter Sixteen of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo, translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter Sixteen. She, with young, unawakened senses, within her cabin on the alpine field, her simple, homely life commences, her little world therein concealed, and I, God's hate flung over me had not enough to thrust the stubborn rocks before me and strike them into dust. She and her peace I yet must undermine. Thou, hell, hast claimed this sacrifice as thine. Goethe, Faust, Bayard Taylor's Translation In 1675, twenty-four years previous to the date of this story, sooth to say, the whole village of Thoctree rejoiced and made merry over the marriage of sweet Lucy Pelrin and that tall, handsome, upright youth, Carol Stead. They had long been lovers, and every one felt a warm interest in the happy pair upon the day which was to change so many restless hopes and eager longings into assured and quiet bliss. Born in the same village, reared in the same fields, Carol had often in their childhood slept in Lucy's lap when tired of play. Lucy had often, as a young girl, leaned on Carol's arm as she returned from work. Lucy was the loveliest and most modest maiden in the land, Carol the bravest and noblest lad in the village. They loved each other, and they could no more remember the day when their love began than they could recall the day when they were born. But their marriage did not come, like their love, easily and as a matter of course. There were domestic interests to be consulted, family feuds, relations, obstacles, they were parted for a whole year, and Carol suffered sadly far from Lucy, and Lucy wept bitter tears far from Carol before the dawn of that happy day which united them thereafter never to suffer or to weep apart. It was by saving her from great danger that Carol finally won his Lucy. He heard cries from the woods one day. They were uttered by his Lucy, surprised by a brigand dreaded by all the mountain folk, and on the point of carrying her off to his den. Carol boldly attacked this monster in human shape, who gave vent to strange growls like those of a wild beast. Yes, he attacked the wretch whom none before had ventured to resist. Love lent him a lion's strength. He rescued his beloved Lucy, restored her to her father, and her father gave her to her deliverer. Now the whole village made merry upon the day which united these two lovers. Lucy alone seemed depressed and yet never had she gazed more tenderly at her dear Carol. But her gaze was as sad as it was loving, and amid the universal rejoicing this was a subject for surprise. Every moment, as her husband's happiness seemed to increase, her eyes expressed more and more love and despair. "'Oh, my Lucy,' said Carol, when the sacred rites were over, "'the coming of that robber, a curse to the entire country, was the greatest blessing for me.' She shook her head and made no answer. Night came. They were left alone in their new abode, and the sports and dancing on the village green went on more merrily than before to celebrate the happiness of the bridal pair. Next morning, Carol's dad had vanished. A few words in his handwriting were brought to Lucy's father by a hunter from the mountains of Keolan, who met him before daylight wandering along the shore of the fjord. Old Will Pelrin showed the paper to his pastor and the mayor, and nothing was left of last night's festival but Lucy's gloom and dull despair. This mysterious catastrophe dismayed the entire village, and vain efforts were made to explain it. Prayers for Carol's soul were said in the same church where, but a few days before, he himself sang hymns of thanksgiving for his happiness. 
No one knew what kept Widow Stead alive. At the end of nine months of solitary grief, she brought into the world a son, and on the same day the village of Golin was destroyed by the fall of the hanging cliff above it. The birth of this son did not dissipate his mother's deep depression. Jill's dad showed no signs of resemblance to Carol. His fierce, angry infancy seemed to prophesy a still more ferocious manhood. Sometimes a little wild man, whom those mountaineers who saw him from a distance asserted to be the famous Hans of Iceland, entered the lonely hut of Carol's widow, and the passers-by would then hear a woman's shrieks and what seemed the roar of a tiger. The man would carry off young Jill, and months would elapse, then he would restore him to his mother, more sombre and more terrible than before. Widow Stead felt a mixture of horror and affection for the child. Sometimes she would clasp him in her maternal arms as the only tie which still bound her to earth. Again she would repulse him with terror, calling upon Carol, her dear Carol. No one in the world knew what agitated her soul. Jill reached his twenty-third year. He saw Goose Sturson and loved her madly. Goose Sturson was rich and he was poor, therefore he set off for Aurora's and turned minor, in order to make money. His mother never heard from him again. One night she sat at the wheel by which she earned her daily bread. The lamp burned low as she worked and waited in her cabin, beneath those walls which had grown old, like herself, in solitude and grief, the silent witnesses of her mysterious wedding night. She thought anxiously of her son, whose presence, ardently desired as it was, would recall much sorrow, perhaps bring more in its train. The poor mother loved her son, ungrateful as he was. And how could she help loving him? She had suffered so much for him. She rose and took from an antique wardrobe a crucifix, thickly coated with dust. For an instant she looked at it imploringly. Then suddenly casting it from her in horror, she cried, I pray. How can I pray? Your prayers can only be addressed to hell, poor woman. You belong to hell, and to hell alone. She had relapsed into her mournful reverie when there was a knock at the door. This was a rare event with Widow's dad. For many long years, in consequence of the strange incidents connected with her history, the whole village of Thocktree believed that she had dealings with evil spirits. No one therefore ever ventured near her hut. Strange superstitions of that age and ignorant region. She owed to her misfortunes the same reputation for witchcraft that the keeper of the Splagest owed to his learning. "'What if it were my son? If it were Jill?' she exclaimed, and she rushed to the door. Alas, it was not her son. It was a little monk clad in serge, his cowl covering all of his face by the black beard. Holy man, said the widow, what would you have? You do not know the house to which you come. Yes, truly, replied the hermit in a hoarse and all too familiar voice. And tearing off his gloves, his black beard and his cowl, he revealed a fierce countenance, a red beard, and a pair of hands armed with tremendous claws. Oh, cried the widow, burying her head in her hands. Well, said the little man, have you not in four and twenty years grown used to seeing the husband upon whom you must gaze through all eternity? Through all eternity, she repeated in a terrified whisper. Hark ye, Lucy Pelrin, I bring you news of your son. My son, where is he? Why does he not come? He cannot. But you have news of him, I thank you. 
alas and can you bring me pleasure they are pleasant tidings indeed that i bring you said the man in hollow tones for you are a weak woman and i wonder that you could bring forth such a son rejoice and be glad you feared that your son would follow in my footsteps fear no longer what cried the enraptured mother has my son my beloved jill changed the hermit watched her raptures with an ominous sneer <laughs> oh greatly changed said he and why did he not fly to my arms where did you see him what was he doing he was asleep in the excess of her joy the widow did not notice the little man's ominous look nor his horrible and scoffing manner why did you not wake him why did you not say to him jill come to your mother his sleep was too sound oh when will he come tell me i implore if i shall see him soon the mock monk drew from beneath his gown a sort of cup of singular shape there widow said he drink to your son's speedy return the widow uttered a shriek of horror it was a human skull she waved it away in terror and could not utter a word no no abruptly exclaimed the man in an awful voice do not turn away your eyes woman look you ask to see your son look i say for this is all that is left of him and by the red light of the lamp he offered the dry and fleshless skull of her son to the mother's pale lips too many waves of misfortune had passed over her soul for one misery the more to crush her she gazed at the cruel monk with a fixed and meaningless stare dead she whispered dead then let me die die if you choose but remember lucy pelerin thocktree woods remember the day when the demon taking possession of your body gave your soul to hell i am that demon lucy and you are my wife forever now <laughs> die if you will it is the belief in those superstitious regions that infernal spirits sometimes appear among men to lead lives of crime and calamity in common with other noted criminals hans of iceland enjoyed this fearful renown it was also believed that a woman who by seduction or by violence became the prey of one of these monsters in human form by that misfortune was doomed to be his companion in hell the events of which the hermit reminded the widow seemed to revive in her these thoughts alas she sobbed then i cannot escape from this wretched existence and what have i done for you know my beloved carol i am innocent a young girl's arm is without strength to resist the arm of a demon she rambled on her eyes were wild with delirium and her incoherent words seemed born of the convulsive quiver of her lips yes carol since that day though polluted i am innocent and the demon asks me if i remember that horrible day carol i never deceived you you came too late i was his before i was yours alas alas and i must be forever punished 
no i can never rejoin you you for whom i weep what would it avail me to die i should follow this monster into a world as fearful as himself the world of the damned and what have i done must my misfortunes in this life become my crimes in the next the little monk bent a look of triumph and command upon her face ah she suddenly exclaimed turning toward him ah tell me is not this some fearful dream induced by your presence for you know but too well alas that since the day of my ruin every night that i am visited by your fatal spirit is marked by foul apparitions awful dreams and frightful visions woman woman sees your raving it is as true as you are wide awake as it is true that jill is dead the memory of her past misfortunes had as it were blotted out all thought of her fresh grief these words revived it oh my son my son she moaned and the tones of her voice would have moved any but the wicked being who heard it no he will return he is not dead i cannot believe that he is dead well go ask him of rora's rocks which crushed out his life of trondheim fjord which swallowed up his body the widow fell upon her knees crying convulsively god <laughs> oh great god be silent servant of hell the wretched woman was silent he added do not doubt your son's death he was punished for the sins of his father he let his granite heart melt in the sunlight of a woman's eyes i possessed you but i never loved you your carol's misfortune was also his my son and yours was deceived by his betrothed by her for whom he died died she repeated died then it is really true oh jill you were born of my misery you were conceived in terror and born in sorrow your lips lacerated my breast as a child you never returned my caresses or embraces you always shunned and repulsed your mother your lonely and forsaken mother you never tried to make me forget my past distress save by causing me fresh injury you deserted me for the demon author of your existence and of my widowhood never in long years jill never did you procure me one thrill of pleasure and yet to-day your death my son seems to be the most insupportable of all my afflictions your memory to-day seems to me to be twined with comfort and rapture alas alas she could not go on she covered her head with her coarse black woollen veil and sobbed bitterly weak woman muttered the hermit then he continued in a firm voice control your grief i laugh at mine listen lucy pelrin while you still weep for your son i have already begun to avenge him it was for a soldier in the munkholm regiment that his sweetheart betrayed him the whole regiment shall perish by my hands look lucy pelrin he had rolled up the sleeves of his gown and showed the widow his misshapen arms stained with blood yes he said with a fierce roar jill's spirit shall delight to haunt urchdal's sands and casket thymore ravine come woman 
Do you not see this blood? Be comforted. Then all at once, as if struck by a sudden thought, he interrupted himself. Widow, did you not receive an iron casket from me? What? I send you gold, and I bring you blood, and you still weep. Are you not human? The widow, absorbed in her despair, was silent. <laughs> what? said he with a fierce laugh. Motionless and mute. You are no woman then, Lucy Perrin. And he shook her by the arm to rouse her. Did not a messenger bring you an iron casket? The widow, lending him a brief attention, shook her head and relapsed into a gloomy reverie. Ah, the wretch! cried the little man. The miserable traitor! Spiagatry! That gold shall cost you dear! Ah. And stripping off his gown, he rushed from the hut with the growl of a hyena that scents a corpse. End of chapter 16